Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Seismologists listen to the rumblings of the ground to understand what's happening deep within the Earth. But some scientists are using these seismological tools to observe ground shakes created by elephants. Yeah. In this next conversation from 2018, I spoke with two scientists to find out what these elephant quakes could tell us about these animals. I want you to listen to a sound and guess what it is. Yeah, it does sound like a heartbeat, but it is not. It is the seismic sound of an elephant walking, the vibrations in the earth. Let me play it again. Really cool, huh? That African elephant is the largest land animal still alive today. And more importantly for this story, they are the heaviest. They weigh up to two tons. So it might not surprise you to learn that we can listen to them in the shaking of the ground. Research in the journal Current Biology reports that earthquake monitoring tools are capable not just of detecting elephants from distances up to six kilometers away, but also distinguishing what kind of behavior is being heard, whether the elephant is walking quickly or even just roaring. And the researchers speculate perhaps this information could help us monitor elephants at risk of poaching, among other conservation efforts. Here to talk with me about that is Beth Mortimer, research fellow in the Department of Zoology and University of Oxford in UK. Welcome, Beth. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. And Tarye Nissemeyer, Associate Professor of Geophysics, also at the University of Oxford. Welcome, uh, Tarye. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Uh, Beth, what sent you looking for elephant seismology in the first place? So I'm interested in animals that use vibrations through materials for information. So some of my previous research has looked at spiders and how they use vibration through the spider web. So I've obviously looked at the other end of the size spectrum, but for the elephant, their spider web is basically the savanna terrain. So it was interested in what the role that their physical environment plays on how they can use these vibrations for information. Tarya, have you ever tried to measure the seismological signal of an animal before? No, certainly not consciously. So this is certainly <laughs> something that we did, <laughs> we did deliberately now. Um, seismic instruments essentially measure anything you can imagine. But, um, but in this study, what we really tried to do is, is uh, focus on this uh, uh, mammal behavior. How difficult is it to do this? How difficult? Yeah, um, describe the equipment you use and how you set it up and right. how it works. 
So the um, the um, recording of, of vibrations works very much like what we're doing right now, which is, uh, talking to a microphone. So we just sort of put the ear to the ground and then listen through the waves as they propagate through the substrate. So wherever the source comes from, um, could be an earthquake, could be a volcano, an impact, a nuclear bomb, or in this case, an animal, um, is is uh, the, the art and science of seismology to disentangle this vibration in terms of where it comes from. All right, I want to play the sound mm. one more time, and then I want to ask both of you to sort of dissect it for me. Let's take one more longer listen. Wow, it, it sounds to me either like a heartbeat or a motorboat underwater. <laughs> it does, yes. So w what we did to generate this audio track was using this geophone, which measures the vibration through the ground, um, basically generates exactly the same as a kind of audio track. But what I had to do for this vibration so that we could hear it is I had to increase the frequency. So the, the actual pitch is actually a lot lower. So think like really low bass that you can feel rather than hear. Uh, and then I also had to amplify this recording as well. So uh, it's modified from its original form, but you can imagine it's the same techniques that you would use to record, say, our, our voices right now. And that was one single elephant we were listening to? That was one elephant uh, walking past, uh, which was recorded in the field in Kenya. Now, you found that these signals can travel three or even six kilometers, or is that up to five miles away from the elephant itself? Is this, is this something a human could feel just standing there? Um, so, humans do have a sense of vibration. Uh, we're not very good at using it, though. So, in, it's a lot better to use these types of uh, geophones uh, than to uh, use our senses itself. But it, it doesn't mean that humans couldn't be taught to use these mm. types of vibrations. In terms of the long-distance scale that you're talking about there, what we were able to do with these recordings is basically get an idea for how much force the elephant uh, was generating. And we put these into then computer models. So that uh, quote of kind of six kilometers was using computer models, so under favorable conditions. So by that, I mean kind of low noise and on a sandy terrain, these high force behaviors such as walking around could be be able to detect and be able to discriminate up to that kind of range. Wow. Now, now Tari, something I found really interesting and surprising is that vocalizations like that you know, really loud male elephant roar we always hear. They could travel further than the massive animals walking do? Well, why, why is that? So this is something um, that is not entirely explained, but I guess the main answer is that, that these, these sort of very low frequency rumbles couple really well to the ground. And, and additionally, the, um, the frequency range um, just um, propagates quite well into far distances through, through the substrate that, that we're looking at. Um, I would say, in general, um, this is not entirely surprising. Any any sort of um, vibration that happens in in any body, such as a such as a large mammal, could in principle couple to the ground and therefore therefore transmit energy. It's just something that we end up just dis, um, um, disentangling now. Mm. Uh, Beth, you say in your research that the same kind of signaling might be able to help us detect when, let's say, a bunch of elephants are stampeding. Say if they're being harassed by poachers. 
Yes, so one of the main aims with this study was to basically use these seismological techniques that are used very widely to investigate some of the earth processes Tari has talked about and be able to detect and discriminate different types of vibrations that are generated by wildlife. So you mentioned the stampeding there. So elephants are obviously very well suited to this type of monitoring because of their large size. But they're also likely to generate the largest amount of force when they're running so really this technique is going to be best suited for measuring these panic runs that elephants do not do unless they have to it takes a lot of energy to have a full out run for an elephant so the idea is we could be able to use this technique to monitor these behaviors which could be a sign of distress and perhaps we could use that to uh, help intervene when there might be hmm. some poaching threat so you'd, yeah, you would just hear them sort of massing and running um uh, Tari, uh, you know, I have a, uh, an Apple Watch, and I put it on my night table at night, and it can detect when I'm walking across the room just mm-hmm. by ti- my tiny bit. Could we not crowdsource this with, you know, electronic devices, our phones or watches or whatever, to m- make sort of crowdsource all this detection? I think it's a very good point, and it's, it's certainly one that we have thought about and talked about as well. Um, and something like that is actually has been tried in terms of earthquake um, detection as well. So in terms of uh, uh, um, wildlife monitoring and, and sort of a pragmatic approach to deploying instrumentation in, in the savannah, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a potential, potential avenue, but, but I would think, realistically speaking, having hundreds of phones lying around in the savannas might not be um, um, sustainable <laughs> in a long <laughs> sense. So, I mean, there are lots of lots of different types of wildlife walking around, and, and um, um, animals are curious too. So, <laughs> so I think um, having instrumentation safely um, right. um, deployed is, is really crucial. Yeah. Uh, Beth, if if you and Tarie and others can hear the elephants' footprint, footprints and also them bellowing, um, could they, the elephants themselves, be signaling to each other? By yes. Uh, Indeed. So we think that, well, starting with their vocalizations, you mentioned the bellowing there, and we've talked about these rumbles. These are certainly kind of uh, signals that the elephants are sending out in specific social situations. So they will have a specific type of vocalization for a greeting, for example, or for an alarm signal. So they're certainly communicating with each other using these vocalizations. And obviously part of that will go through the air and part of it goes through the ground and obviously we're interested in that part that goes through the ground really understanding how their physical environment plays a role in that but yes they're certainly communicating could could you test that could you actually you know do your own little footprints and see if they respond Absolutely. There have been some excellent studies before that have used seismic recordings, so use these ground-based recordings, and played them back to Mm. the elephants. And we know that the elephants respond to these vibrations, and they can even discriminate in terms of who has sent that particular vocalization, so whether it was a known elephant or an elephant that they didn't know. And obviously this is something that needs a lot more study in terms of understanding the sensitivity of the elephants and really starting to look at how that might change mm. under different noise conditions, for example. I have to prevent myself from humming I Talk to the Elephants song. From <laughs> Remember that one? <laughs> uh, 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 what, uh, what about other animals besides the elephants? Can we use seismic you know, to detect and talk to them possibly? 
So this technique is going to be best suited for animals that uh, generate a large amount of force. So large land mammals, it's possible that we can pick them up. The research that needs to be done is obviously looking at how not only whether we can detect them, but whether we can discriminate between, say, antelope versus zebra or looking at mm. uh, different behaviours. So that's certainly the yeah. next research project that needs a lot more uh, data to look at that. Uh, Tarje, do you ever think that as a geophysicist you'd be involved in tracking elephants? <laughs> no, I mean, I've certainly had an interest um, in, in animals of all sorts of sizes ever since being a child, like many others. Um, but I guess growing into the field of seismology, you sort of realize that, that uh, vibrations just happen everywhere on the planet. And, and of course, it shouldn't prevent us from studying any sort of vibration rather than just earthquakes. So yeah. it's, it's a natural trajectory, I think, that we're taking. Okay. That's interesting. Beth Mortimer, research fellow in zoology, and Tarje Nissenmeyer, associate professor of geophysics, both at the University of Oxford in the UK. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you. That earth-shaking news from a conversation in 2018. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. For the rest of the hour, we're revisiting an interview from 2004 with the author Margaret Atwood, known, of course, for her classic The Handmaid's Tale, way before the hit TV show. But for this conversation, we'll talk about her book Oryx and Crake, a very different post-apocalyptic story. Let me set the background for this conversation for you that was recorded 17 years ago. You may recall 2004 fell at the tail end of a past pandemic, the SARS outbreak that infected over 8,000 people across 29 countries. In other news that year, in Europe, 10 new countries joined the European Union, making it the largest free trade zone in the world at that time. At April, the beginning of the baseball season, saw the year the Red Sox won the World Series, breaking their curse after an 86-year drought. Atwood's book, Oryx and Crake, was first published in 2003 and was the first book in her Mad Adam trilogy. And in 2016, we'd revisit it as part of our Sci-Fi Book Club. And now, my interview with Margaret Atwood. For the rest of the hour, I'm joined by poet and novelist Margaret Atwood, author of over 25 volumes of fiction, nonfiction poetry, including uh, The Handmaid's Tale and Blind Assassin, which earned her the Booker Prize. Her latest book, Oryx and Crake, is just out in paperback and is on a short list of nominees for the Orange Prize for Fiction. And if you know, don't know what the Orange Prize for Fiction is, you put that into a search engine and it'll tell you it's either awarded for the best short story about citrus fruit growers or to a woman who has written the best full-length novel in English. Margaret Atwood, which one does it? I suspect the latter. Well, it would be kind of nice if it were the former, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Give you a ready-made subject. <laughs> well, I don't think I need a ready-made subject with you. You certainly, uh, you know, have lots of subjects to talk about. Where do you... <laughs> Citrus fruit would be a challenge. Well, if you picked up the Toronto paper today, a thing I'm sure you're in the habit of doing... 
Oh, you would have seen that we have a science story right on the front page. And what is it? Remember SARS? Mm-hmm. Remember that? That was last year at this time. They've now found uh, a marker for it to allow you to tell it apart from ordinary flu very quickly. They just announced that today. It's an immune molecule that turns up in, in SARS and not so in, in the flu. And they were able to do that because they whipped around and got samples from all of the SARS patients that were in hospital last year at this time. You speak like you're a science reporter. Well, I'm just giving you a few tips here. Oh, I like that. Uh, and your books, are certainly uh, certainly The Handmaid's Tale and now Oryx and Crake, are certainly loaded with science in them. I mean, how much research do you have to do for these? Yeah, not so much The Handmaid's Tale. I would say that's more the, the costume design <laughs> and, you know, design a nation, <laughs> design a political system. Right. Uh, but the this particular one, we... Uh, accumulated clippings for every little factoid in the book in our big brown research box in the cellar and we got so many that we actually had to go to two big brown research boxes so all of the things in the book that people may think are very weird and they may think that I just made them up some of them already existed when I was writing the book for instance the luminous green rabbit that was made for a magician who wanted to pull a rabbit out of a hat, but he wanted the rabbit to glow in the dark. So now it does. Mm-hmm. And the spider goat has been up and running in Montreal for some years. It makes silk in its milk very good for bulletproof vests. And um, a number of the other things have either been made already or are people are working very hard to make them. For instance, the pigs that can grow transplantable organs that would fit in with your previous uh, item. They're working on that. They're still having the rejection problem. But I think the kangaroo lamb might be a hit because it would make make sheep that would burp less. (laughs) And this would reduce. Don't laugh now. This would reduce. You're a science reporter. I'm listening. You're not supposed to I'm, laugh I'm at taking, those I'm taking notes. Go okay. ahead. Okay. It would reduce the methane being released into the atmosphere. And that they is a major have, problem. I know that. Well, yeah. it is actually, yeah. and they've they've got a substance that is that is that you feed to cows orally. It's sort of like Beano, and um, that has the same effect on cows. But if you could um, make cows that don't even need this pill. Think how good that would be, and there might even be a human application. You know, the the uh, the the poorer condition the cow is in, the the more methane it releases into the atmosphere. So I didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we just need to have healthy, romping cows. Well, there is something there, um, and and that's why you um, you say you don't consider yourself to be a science fiction writer because all these things you write about are quite possible and happening. Well, uh, no, I, I, let's just go back a few steps. It's, it's just a question of terminology. Uh-huh. Uh, and some people call everything that isn't, say, a Jane Austen-like uh, social novel, uh, they call all those kinds of weird tales science fiction. And some people make a division between science fiction, which is the Flash Gordon, uh, Other Planet, Star Trek, Star Wars kind of thing, um, and speculative fiction, which is more your 1984 could happen here mm-hmm. type of fiction, and I write the latter kind. Mm-hmm. Could happen, probably, 
um, part of it has happened and might well happen. Were, were you influenced by 1984? I read Animal Farm as a child, and I thought it was going to be a, a fun, no, a fun book, sort of like Wind in the Willows, about happy animals. And I had no idea that it was a political satire. I knew nothing about Stalin and Lenin and mm-hmm. uh, all of those goings on. And I just was very upset by it because the horse dies. Not only that, the horse is horribly betrayed. He's going to get made into dog food. And um, the bad guys win, namely the, the pigs who take over everybody and and um, turn into tyrants. Hmm. So I was quite disturbed by it. And then I read 1984 probably a couple of years after it came out. So it, it was written in 1948. I think it must have been published in 50. So just in time for me as a young teenager to read it in high school and be very upset by it, mm-hmm. too. Now, you were surrounded by, by science as a, as a teenager, weren't you? Well, as a, as from the moment I was born, really, because my father was a, an entomologist, and at that time he was a research entomologist with the Canadian government, and he had a little insect research station in northern Quebec, and that's where I spent a lot of time as a child. And my brother, who was an older brother, turned into a scientist. He started as a marine biologist and then became a neurophysiologist specializing in the synapse. So I strayed off the path. I was always a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> where did where did I go wrong? Your father yeah, must have Yeah, they used, used to shake his head and say, you know, botany really, they, botany lost a fine botanist in you. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, it did not make you afraid of science. You were sensitized no, at an early age. Yeah, no, right? I'm not So you can write about it. it, yeah. Well, yes, and scientists, of course, there's no more there's no more skeptical person than a scientist mm-hmm. about claims of other scientists. So mm-hmm. I also learned to learn to view uh, these miracle cures and astonishing new things. You you have you ask immediately how did they do the study? Mm-hmm. You know exactly what were they counting? Um, will this work? Does it really work? And what are the side effects of it going to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Oryx and Crake um, is is really is 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 deals with dystopia, you know, which was if technology goes nutty, dehumanizing everybody. Well, technology never goes nutty by itself. You know, it doesn't sit in a room going nutty yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not it's, yet. It's it's people who. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we maybe we shouldn't use that term, <laughs> go nutty. Maybe we should say. Uh, people who don't always color inside the lines mm-hmm. with the science that they have made. But but any kind of science is really just a tool for expressing and perfecting human desires, and sometimes it's a tool for counteracting human fears. For, ins- we, for instance, we work very hard at ultimate weapons because we're afraid the other side might also get ultimate weapons and mm-hmm. use them on us. So that's the fear side. And the hope, wish, and desire side is things like fixing your heart with stem cells. Right. You know, we wouldn't be doing those experiments unless we wanted to fix our hearts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's part of the human dream, to, to live a long time. Along with that goes uh, be young and beautiful all the time as well. And uh, a whole other wish list and a lot of the science 
that is done is aimed towards perfecting that list. Mm -hmm. Now, the residue is aimed towards satisfying our curiosity, which is also a very human thing. Mm-hmm. So, so is uh, the bleak future in Oryx and Crake, is that a warning or is that a prediction? Well, let us just say that this is a fun-filled, joke-packed adventure <laughs> novel about <laughs> the possible downfall of the human race. There's lots it's of jokes filled. in yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It's, it's <laughs> quite, and you have quite a sense of humor. I remember from the Kentucky Authors Forum when we talked last time, I learned yes. what a great sense of humor you have. So that's, well, and it's in the book. It's there in the book. There's, yeah. There you go. So we can say bleak, bleak times, but... Um, but lots of times have been bleak. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things we can do as human beings is we, we make jokes and we laugh. Uh, I suspect that parrots and, and occasionally even um, cats and dogs do the same thing secretly, but we certainly do it. And while you're, while you're laughing, you're still alive. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. But one, back, I'm sorry. Back to your question. Yeah. Yes. Oh, dystopia possible future. Well, as, as I said, all of the factoids have their backup in the, in the research box, but on the other hand, nobody can predict the future because there are too many variables. I think for the first time in human history, we see where we might go. You know, we can see far enough ahead into the future to know that, um, that we can't go on the way we've been going forever without inventing possibly a lot of new and different things. And um, the other question is, will we have the political will to do that? And you've never been shy about expressing politics. Well, in, a, in the larger sense, that's true. I, it doesn't usually come down to who you should vote for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like everybody else, I'm very fond of making up speeches that I wish some leader would, would give. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish some leader would say, I know that we should not be snarled up in, in oil in the Middle East, and therefore I'm going to devote a lot of time and energy to uh, alternate sources of energy right here in North America. Is you that, know, is that a topic anybody? for a book? Um, I think it should be a topic for, well, I'm sure people are writing them. I can name two right now. You can look them up on your Mm -hmm. search engine. Mm -hmm. Type in waste into oil. And if you don't get it that way, type in waste into oil, butterball turkey. (laughs) Because one of these plants is up and running near the butterball turkey farm. Mm -hmm. And it's recycling the parts of the butterball turkeys you don't want to eat into oil. Yeah, we, we've we've them we've into ta- oil. Yeah, we've talked about You've done that. that one. Well, not that have one in particular. That's a good one. We have to look into that. We've done yeah. it. We talked about the uh, the oil that comes out of the McDonald's f- deep fat fryers being recycled. Oh, that that's 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 last year. That's, uh, we're <laughs> I'm going to have you more on more often so you can on, point this in the right look, direction. Yeah, on this one, you can put in not only parts of butterball turkeys that you don't want, but you can put in any carbon based form. So, um, you know. The mob can recycle people it wants to. <laughs> Anything except yeah. uh, metal shirt buttons. They come out a little separate drawer at the end. <laughs> have to look for the, the pile end, of you those. Get, <laughs> you get water and oil, and it's a nice light-grade oil, very usable. Right. Think of how good that would be. And the other thing you should look into is, is gas hydrates, mm-hmm. uh, because there's enough gas hydrates frozen on the earth today to run the economy as it now stands for 117,000 years. What do you think about hydrogen? Don't know much about hydrogen. Mm-hmm. 
I'd say that it's uh, not there yet by any means. Mm-hmm. But should we not get there in, say, 30 years, uh, it, we would be well advised to have developed these other things first. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to a 2004 conversation with author Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake. Lots of people would like to talk to you. Susan in Oswego, New York. Hi, Susan. Hi, how you doing? Hi. Go ahead. Okay, well, uh, first of all, I'm just thrilled to be able to speak with you because uh, your books have had a profound effect on me as well as a bunch of people that I know. Now, my question is, is obviously you've been uh, highly steeped in science, uh, family, whatnot, but uh, trying to look at your at your books as a whole, um, do you think that this is a progression, your latest, your latest novel, and also um, your characters from previous novels? I mean, like uh, Cordelia and Cat's Eye, for example. I mean, she could have a book all to herself. Um, well, what, do you, what do you think about uh, maybe reinventing some old characters and bringing them back? Well, you know what they used to say, art is long, life is short. <laughs> yeah. If I had, you know, have some of these guys get to work on my heart with their stem cells, and uh, maybe I'll live another hundred years and be able to do all of those things. Um, they all don't think they haven't occurred to me. I don't know about this book being a progression. It's, it's, um, it's the first one that's had a male narrator who got the whole story all to himself. So whether you think of that as a progression or not, I'm not sure. It's um, certainly the most disastrous <laughs> novel I've written. Would that be a progression? <laughs> oh, it depends <laughs> so when I look I at it, I guess. Well, you, you, put, you put men and disaster together in two sentences. <laughs> oh, would I, would I make such a link? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come now. There's a gambling going on in here. No, I, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Thank you. So we're not, we can't expect another uh, science-related book coming out next? We don't know what to expect next because, as I said, nobody yeah. can predict the future. Yeah, okay. That's, I, I, I read between those lines. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Fledo. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to a 2004 conversation with author Margaret Atwood about her post-apocalyptic book Oryx and Crake and the science and technology in her writing. And we jump back in, talking more with a prolific author about her writing process. Well, let me ask you why you came so late to the table, if, let me put it a different way, with having a science-based book like this. Why I came so late to the table? Well, I've had some mini-fictions before that time, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can find sprinkled. For instance, there's a little book called Good Bones and Simple Murders. And um, some of those are, they're very, very small. They're a couple of pages long, but, but one of them is narrated by intelligent insects from another planet. And um, one of them called Hardball is, is, uh, a mini disaster story. So I haven't I haven't been slacking off. I've just been painting on a small canvas mm-hmm. in this area. So did you just think this was the right time to do this, or just well, something that was bubbling in your mind? Yeah, you, you write the books you can't avoid writing, especially if you're a congenitally lazy person such as myself. Uh, think how much fun it would be actually not to write a book. Hmm. I, c- I can't you're, think like you're that. You're thinking. 
I, they, I can't remember the newspaper columnist who said who retired recently from the Times. He was I can't think of his name. I'm having a senior moment. He said, "I love to. Ha- I love the act of having written, but not the act of writing." Yes. Well, then it was time for him to retire. <laughs> But I've been like that all my life. <laughs> but you're not right. So is this not your swan song then? Oh, no, no, by any means. No, but I think my point about the novel is that if if you absolutely can't avoid it and you know that you're going to be thinking about it all the time unless you do it, then you have to do it. Mm, so you just then sit down and do it. Then you then you do it, and sometimes you then throw it out. And you, that is one good thing about writing books. You get a second chance. It's not like sort of messing up the grand aria of the opera where everybody's watching you. Mm-hmm. You can write in secret and then say, this is truly bad. <laughs> and I shall <laughs> now I shall put it in the waste paper basket. Let's go to the phones. Bobby in Tallahassee. Hi, welcome to Science Friday, Bobby. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Fine, go ahead. Um, besides your parents and your brother, what... Was there anything else that influenced you into writing? Well, they didn't really influence the writing. I came to that on my on my own, although the family always read books. Um, so they were the science end. My dad was a scientist. My brother was one. And everybody else in the family except my aunt, maybe here's the influence, my aunt wrote Sunday school stories. So she was the writer. And... Um, I think she was an early encourager of mine when I was in high school. And I should mention also my high school English teacher, whose name was Bessie B. Billings. Hmm. And Bessie B. Billings, when I was uh, 16, was encouraging to me, whereas Florence P. Smedley, the one from the year before, uh, when asked by a documentary maker whether I had shown any promise, she actually told the truth. And she said, not in my class. <laughs> Refreshing honesty. <laughs> so I don't know how it happened. It was the 50s. It was Canada. You wouldn't expect such a thing to happen, becoming a writer then. But I just started doing it. Do you only write fiction? I write poetry, and I write nonfiction. I do quite a lot of writing for uh, sometimes newspapers and sometimes magazines. And I write film scripts from time to time. I've never written a play. Okay, Bobby? Yeah. Okay, thank you for calling. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. You well, too. Let's see if we can get a few more uh, phone calls in. Let's go to Chris in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, when I worked in a car factory, I read um, Handmaid's Tale, and now I'm having trouble... Uh, Hearing the exact title of uh, Margaret's current book on my car radio, it sounds okay, like works in something as in Tolkien, you know, so what's okay. the exact title? Let me spell it for, for you. Oryx, O-R-Y-X, and Crake, C-R-A-K-E. Does that help, Chris? And this is a paperback original? It's a paperback. Um, the hardback came out last year. Uh, Margaret, so can you t- tell us the genesis of how you came up with that name for the book. With the title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are two characters in the book. Oryx is a female character and Craig is a male character. And um, when the book opens, it opens in the middle of events, uh, you're not seeing either of them. You're seeing the guy who's telling us the story, and he started life as Jimmy. And Craig was his best friend, 
and Oryx uh, is a girl they both met on the internet. And when the book opens, which is, as I said, in the middle of events, Oryx and Craig are both dead, but they're continuing to occupy Jimmy's mind. Mm -hmm. Jimmy's living in a tree, uh, and you'll be happy to know that in the future there will be duct tape, and with this... (laughs) With the duct tape, he's made himself a platform in the tree. And there are no other human beings like himself in view. But there are some other people-like people who have earlier been designed by Crake. And they have a lot of improvements. They're genetically engineered. They're genetically engineered um, to be better than we. For instance, they've got built-in sunblock. That would be a plus. They've got built-in mosquito repellent, another plus. They're completely vegetarian, and they can eat grass and leaves, unlike us. So they've been modified in the direction of the rabbit as to their digestive systems. But best of all, they will never have any sexual jealousy because, unlike us, we're serially monogamous, They are seasonal, like lots of other animals and fish and birds. And to make things even more clear, when they're in season, parts of them turn blue. Think how useful that would be. There will never be any more no means yes. There will never be any more I'm washing my hair, and I'll be washing it again next Friday. But mind you... (laughs) These people will never write Othello. They'll never write Shakespeare's sonnets. They'll never write Wuthering Heights because they can't write. Think of what an improvement that would be. What an improvement. And, and, another, <laughs> and another thing they'll never do is live very long. You've given them a definite lifespan. They'll never get old. They'll right. never get old. Think of it as a plus. They just topple over at the age of 35, but they haven't found that out yet because none of them are 35. Why such, why such limited people? Or were they called Quakers in the book? They're not really people in, in this. Uh, well, they're limited in... Um, Crake designed them to avoid the problems that we have as a species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not unhappy over all of the things that we ourselves get unhappy about. Uh, we get unhappy over uh, limited resources. Well, they don't need a lot of resources. We get unhappy about falling in love with people who don't fall in love with us. That will never happen to them. So Craig has taken um, all the ambiguity, all the choices that we have to make, all the things that drive us nuts out of these people. All of the things that drive us nuts, he's tried to deal with them. Now, we're not sure that he has succeeded, mm-hmm. but he did his best. He was unable to get rid of dreams. They seem very hardwired. You've probably seen your dog dreaming. That's the part where it kicks its legs and right. howls when it's asleep. Uh, they, he could not get rid of, of music. That seems to be very deep in us. Um, and he may have been unable to get rid of, uh, ultimately, a theology of some kind because we are a species that asks questions and he couldn't get rid of the desire to ask questions. And sooner or later, we're going to ask, where did we come from? Did he get rid of love and beauty? He got, oh no, he made the beauty more beautiful. Mm -hmm. These people are very beautiful people, and they're very loving and kind and affectionate. 
So, no, that those qualities are still there. They even like Jimmy, who is not like them at all and is actually uh, having quite a few challenges because he's falling apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're very kind to him. Yeah. David in San Jose. Hi, David. Hi. It's my first time on your show, and I always enjoyed your show. And this, um, Miss Atwood, I enjoyed your book. And oh, just wanted you. to quickly know, um, is it going to be made into a movie like The Handmaid's Tale, which was also a great book and a great movie? Well, thank you. Um, we have been doing movie talk. You know movie talk. Uh-huh. Movie talk goes on before movies actually mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And in order to make this a, a movie of any interest whatsoever, you would have to make it quite well. Mm. And you would have to, because otherwise it would be a strange-looking person hopping around in the shrubs. Well, maybe talk and to Peter Jackson then. <laughs> well, that's a possibility. Uh, so, but you would have to do it. Um, you would really have to put a lot of thought into it. Mm-hmm. I do believe. Would you well, al- would you allow would you allow Hollywood to take this on or a smaller filmmaker? Uh, Hollywood isn't always bad. Mm-hmm. You know, people say Hollywood yeah. and go shock horror, throw up your hands, roll your eyes. But you know, Hollywood isn't always bad. In fact, Hollywood has t- done some great movies. Um, and with any movie, you have to um, you have to keep in mind that you can have the best director, the best scriptwriter, the best actors, the best everything, and it can still be a horrible movie. Well, can I follow? Or you can have oh, sorry. Yeah, you can have a completely unknown person who makes a terrific movie. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to a 2004 conversation with author Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake. Talking with uh, Margaret Atwood. Uh, go ahead, David. You want to? Well, were you happy with that way Handmaid's Tale was made? Back Handmaid's Tale was a movie. Right. And any movie is going to be more literal than a book. I Because movies, movies can't handle metaphor. Um, I think considering the fact that it was a movie, it was really pretty good. They, they did change the ending. And they couldn't do the ending that's in the book because it would have meant a whole new cast of characters and it would have been very puzzling. Uh, But I think on the whole, and if you see it now, it actually seems a bit closer to something that might happen than than when it came out. It came out in 89, just when the Cold War uh, was ending and the wall was coming down and everybody thought we were entering a brave new future in which there would be no further conflict and everything would be wonderful forever. And that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. All right, David, thanks for calling. Thank you very much. So who would you have starring in your n- new movie? If you <laughs> who would I have starring? <laughs> oh, you've entered a category of questions I can't answer. I knew there was usually, something going on in the negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> I usually turn to my uh, <laughs> people who work with me in the office, both of whom are under 30, and they're really up on these things. They've got a lot of opinions. So I say to them, who would you have starring? And they, they would reel off about 10 names. Hmm. Uh, but I'm not, uh, up, I don't read movie magazines the way they do. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, go to, uh, is it Oren in Ann Arbor? Yes, it is. Hi, go ahead. Hello, I'd uh, just like to start, this is a great honor, Margaret. I think uh, you're an well, amazing thank you. author. I'm uh, an English teacher, matter of fact, in, in Michigan here, and I'm teaching a creative writing class, and I'm thinking about having a read Oryx and Craig. Um, I'm wondering what you might be able to say to this crew who is, you know, uh, just starting off and very interested in writing and all of that. Um, wh- what kind of thing could you tell them to kind of, I don't know, get them 
started along the, the route of becoming a writer. How old are they? Uh, they're, you know, juniors and seniors in high school, so 17, So 18. they're 17, 18? Yeah. Um, one page at a time, <laughs> one, f- one foot at a time, don't look down. Why don't look down? Because you're on a tightrope. Don't look down. Just keep going one page at a time. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. I'll pass it on. Thanks for calling. Okay. Of course. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, in an, in an article in, uh, in a New Scientist magazine, um, they, asked you, uh, they asked you about, you taught Kafka to engineers in British Columbia. I did. Why? why? <laughs> well, I was supposed to be teaching them grammar. Right, at right. 8.30 in the morning. And um, I thought, how can I teach grammar to engineers in any way that's going to keep them awake at that hour, plus myself, keep awake? And uh, so I gave them Kafka's parables, which are quite short, and also have, a, have puzzles embedded in them. And engineers are problem solvers, so of course this idea, this idea of having a puzzle and a piece of writing appealed to them, and I asked them to write little parables like that that had puzzles in them. So it was a way of getting them to write English sentences, you know, sentences made of words <laughs> in the English <laughs> language, uh, on, su- on a subject that would appeal to them, because if I'd asked them to write My Summer Vacation or Why I Love Flowers, you know, <laughs> it was yeah. not going to work. Yeah, you know. I know what so I'm it actually worked quite well. Yeah, yeah. They, they, it was something for them to solve, and they could make up puzzles of their own to baffle the other engineers, and uh, they could examine the idea of paradox. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So are, are you working on something now? I'm always working on something. I knew that was the wrong question to ask you. you know? <laughs> I knew that. I always, I'm always working on something, and I will never tell you what it is. <laughs> well, I didn't ask you, did I? Yes, but I, I'm I just better. forestalling. Even if you did ask me, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you because because it's a puzzle. It's a paradox. <laughs> it's, it's a conundrum. <laughs> <laughs> but you always say that when you, what motivates you to write is something in there that has to come out. So something has to come out now. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, this how, is how, called. Stonewalling. Well, yes. I'm, no, I, I, I know from talking with you before that you're not the kind of person going to write something once and it comes right out. It takes a while for you to rewrite it and rewrite it, correct? I do, yes. I, I, I pour over it. It's true. Yeah. Well, um, I, join, join the rest of us who have. <laughs> that's the only thing I think, I mean, my ability to write and your ability to write is, is, are, are on opposite ends of spectrums, but that's the only thing that we share is it takes me forever to write something also. Um, we poor, yes. <laughs> poor. Thank you very much, Margaret, for taking time to be with us, and good luck to you. Always, always a pleasure. That conversation with Margaret Atwood was recorded 17 years ago in April of 2004. And you know you can dive into the dystopian world of Oryx and Crake by revisiting our Sci-Fi Book Club from 2016 and listen to more interviews with Margaret Atwood. It's all up there on our website at sciencefriday.com slash Atwood. And if you like traveling back in science history, check out our newsletter series, Science Friday Rewind, in which we look back on the decades of discovery recorded in Science Friday's 30 Years of Archives. Some wonderful interviews there. You'll find them at sciencefriday.com slash rewind. And if you missed any part of this program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts 
or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And of course, you can always say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us the classic way. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. 